Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get to our next guest here, Jess Larson, CEO and founder of Briarcliff Credit Partners. Jess, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I want to get, you know, a, your view of the private credit business. Give us a sense of like how big private credit is. Is it growing? How is it used within the capital markets? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on. Um, private credit is already sitting at $1.2 trillion. So it is it has really matured and grown since kind of Dot Frank intermediated the banks. So it's been sprinting and growing since 2010. Now, what's really interesting here is that sprint and that growth is not is not slowing down by any in any way. So what we anticipate is by 2026, so only a few years few years out, it will be a 2.7 trillion dollar asset class. So growth is there; it's here to stay. How do I get a piece of that? Because I hear I'm looking at the 10-year uh, trading at 2.4%. That doesn't do it for me. I need more yield. I'm thinking about private credit. How do I get exposure? How does the average investor get exposure to the private credit market? Well, depending on whether we talk about the average average uh, consumer or the average institutions, right? But that is exactly you're touching on the on the perfect point here, right? Is your fixed income is really becoming a no income. And so what you want to do is you want to rotate some of that into your private credit and in many cases, what's the direct lending asset class. So what that is exactly why we're seeing private credit becoming increasingly popular. Right. It is it is for those reasons. Is there a difference between what you're doing and direct lending? Private credit um, is a very broad kind of asset class as sub part of that or sub-strategy that is direct lending. But there's so much more to private credit than just direct lending. And that is exactly what we do here at, at Briarcliff. We look at more niche sector-specific, uncorrelated uh, strategies that sit outside of direct lending, offering other types of access and exposure to these institutions. And to you, but you got to call me after this, uh, after sure. this program. So what kind of sectors are interesting to you guys at Briarcliff these days in, in terms of the credit uh, outlook? Yes. What we have seen over the last five, six years, which has been really interesting within the private credit space, we have seen direct lending really taking front and center. Bearing in mind, leading up to the GFC, it was really mess and distressed for control. That was really what private credit was pre-GFC. Post-GFC and Dr. Frank, it was all about direct lending because the bank simply couldn't offer it. Direct lending is a great asset class, but as more capital comes into it, there has been some compression returns. U.S. pension funds and a lot of institutions here in the U.S. have an internal uh, performance hurdle of 7%. And if your direct lending is no longer meeting that, you really want to look outside of direct lending. It could be sector-specific. It could be different kind of specialty lending. It could be structured products. It could be all sorts of uncorrelated strategies that kind of gives you more diversification and even higher performance. And that's what we're looking for. Where, uh, I guess there's probably no shortage of, but where are you getting the borrowers? 
Well, the boroughs, well, you know, the, the majority of our society, or the majority of our, our economy are really private, privately owned companies. So there is really no shortage of boroughs out there. As long as the banks are in, unable to really service these private companies, so there are no shortage. Whether we find them in the healthcare industry, in the food sector, or even the sports clubs, or simply even the banks need help with their revolver strategies, there are really no shortage of boroughs out there. But can and you do it? Do. I mean, is it cheaper than a bank? I mean, sorry, an institution going to a bank and selling a bond? Well, for many companies like your restaurant chains, um, the banking finance is simply not available anymore. Right? Um, and if you want flexible capital or flexible financing, you, you, the banking route is simply not possible anymore. So you really need to find different ways of accessing the capital market. And that is why the, the private credit is not so much about price. It's more about the ability to really get access. Hey, Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. Jess Larson, CEO and founder of Briarcliff Credit Partners. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. We're running on a financial system that's running on old technology. We're seeing house prices reach fresh record highs. What unfolds in midterms, we will no doubt see again in the next presidential election. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, The Big Take story today takes us to the main line of Philadelphia. We're talking Malvern, Pennsylvania. And when you talk Malvern, you talk uh, you know, about Vanguard. They have $8 trillion in assets under management. Only BlackRock manages more money. But there's change going on at Vanguard. Let's get the latest uh, on that story. Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us here with The Big Take story. What's going on in Malvern, Pennsylvania, Annie? So Vanguard, as you mentioned, is one of the world's largest asset managers. It's the second largest in the entire world with $8 trillion in assets. And it built, it was, it was founded by Jack Bogle on this principle of low-cost, steady-as-it-goes investing. And they've, they've pivoted in some ways as the industry has changed to keep up and to continue competing. So it's really a, a very unique uh, model in the industry. And, it, and they're starting to move into directions that are a little bit different for a place like Vanguard. Uh, places like private equity, for example, which uh, seem counter, at least to some people, to what Bogle's ethos was all about. Got to be counter to everyone about what Bogle... I mean, imagine, if you will, someone who changed Wall Street more than anyone else and didn't end up a billionaire. Isn't that the case with Jack Bogle? Exactly. Uh, Vogel did not wind up a billionaire. He had, I think, about uh, a net worth of less than $100 million when he died. And you compare that against, you know, the billionaires, uh, the billionaire Johnson family, for example, of Fidelity fame, a direct competitor to Vanguard. So it's pretty extraordinary. He founded the firm all on the idea of lowering costs year after year for investors and really offering these cheap funds, mostly index funds, um, and undercutting competitors on price. What's changed in the industry is all the other competitors like BlackRock, Fidelity, Charles Schwab had basically no choice but to follow Vanguard and cut their own fees on a lot of funds to the bone as well. And so what Vanguard is seeing now is that it kind of has to move in a different direction 
if it wants to keep accumulating assets because it's already so large. So that's helped precipitate some of the changes. But like, does it, you know, Annie? I mean, the the, the point, uh, the reason Bogle died with only a hundred million dollars, uh, roughly, is that it wasn't his end game. He 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 wasn't trying to get mega rich. Um, he didn't need to to win in Wall Street terms. He was on a mission to help the average investor. If that's what Vanguard wants to do, um, do they think private equity products are gonna help the average investor? Precisely, well, they say that they can undercut competitors on price, even for private equity, that that kind of rarefied higher fee world. But you know it is different. It's a, it's a it's a bit of a shift for them. They're also focused a lot on financial advice, and something that um, ha- has that people have kind of observed is oh there are a couple of funds now that are only for their advice customers. So you know is could that be considered counter to Bogle's kind of ethos as well? So the point, Vanguard's whole raison d'être is still lowering costs. It has this unusual mutualized ownership structure um, where its funds own the firm and therefore the investors in the funds own the firm. So it's different from any other kind of beast on Wall Street. But, um, you know, it has this community of diehard fans called the Bogleheads, and they've observed some of this change happening and in some cases raised an eyebrow. And he talked to us about the culture at Vanguard. Uh, One of the things that jumps out of me was they don't pay their people that well do they what's the culture there right so because the the firm is so focused on cost cutting and is is located away from wall street in this suburb of pennsylvania um malvern it it has a different kind of culture it has a very insular culture um it has a culture of bogle founded the firm uh, with this kind of focus on uh, ship terminology that comes from Vanguard's named after um, an 18th century naval ship. Um, so the the staff is called a crew. Um, they use a lot of nautical terminology. Uh, they're removed from Wall Street and uh, by most people's accounts, a little bit less hard charging and sharp elbowed as it can be to work at some kinds of competitors. Um, and and because the firm is focused on cost cutting, you're not going to get the kind of dazzling salaries you might be able to um, elsewhere, uh, because you know the point. So much of the point of working at Vanguard is this mission of uh, lowering costs for investors. So to work there, you kind of have to buy into that mentality. And um, one thing we note in the story is that uh, typically they pay about a third less than other major Wall Street competitors as a result. Well, you don't have to pay too much if you're if all you're going to do is buy the S&P in a basket and hold it until you die. Right. Which is kind of what Jack Bogle used to espouse. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I don't need much advice for that, Annie. I just, you know, I just gave it. That's right. So that's another interesting thing. Bogle, uh, Bogle's real adherence are very do-it-yourself kinds of investors. When you talk to people who are in the Bogleheads community, many of them independently came to Bogle's philosophies, read his books, and became almost religiously devoted to his, his principles about making sure that you're paying very low fees and just you know buying the market um, through index funds, letting it compound over time. So they're they're very very focused on that. So that's another way that 
the the shift to advice could be seen as a little bit different from uh, what Vogel had had previously preached. All right, Annie, thank you so much. We appreciate that. And a note, uh, Annie, in your piece, you quote uh, uh, Eric Balchunas, an analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. He's got a new book out. It's author. It's called The Bogle Effect. Uh, so it talks about Bogle's life and influence. So uh, Annie uh, quoted Mr. Balchunas in there. Maybe we'll get Eric on at some point to talk about his book and his thoughts and what he discovered about these, this huge fund down in suburban uh, Philadelphia. Annie Massa, investor reporter for Bloomberg News with a Big Take story today. You can find that on Bloomberg.com slash Big Take or NI space Big Take Go on the Bloomberg terminal. Interest rates, they're rising. Inflation, it's rising. The economy, it's slowing. What is an equity investor to do? Hugh Roberts, head of analytics at Quant Insights, joins us. Hugh, I guess... I'd love to get your thoughts about these markets here, given some of the notable headwinds we have out there. What is your take? Well, interestingly, on our models, although you have um, a lot of scary headlines out there, and I totally get the narrative that, um, that people are looking at, I've actually just seen a bounce which made complete sense on our modeling work. The way the pattern of association between S&P, NASDAQ, Russell, and macro factors is as long as the Fed are relatively measured with their rate hiking campaign, and as long as that measurement involves you know, no disruption to credit spreads, no big risk off moves in regards to VIX, then actually on current patterns, there's no reason why this has to be bad for U.S. equity markets. The key that we're really watching is the relationship with credit spreads and also the level of real yield. I think the game changer will be if the Fed's campaign starts to continue to see real yields moving higher and even start threatening to move into positive territory, then you could have a regime change. But for now, equities are actually doing what they should be doing given current macro patterns. Yeah. Real yields right now are negative uh, 53 basis points on the 10-year. Um, yeah. Uh, but the question is, um, I guess we could still go into a recession and equities could be fine, right? I mean, it doesn't always have to mean that we have losses on indexes because the economy contracts for two quarters in a row. I think that's a really fair comment. I really do. And also, I think just to take a step back on that, I think the key thing now is, is the inflation narrative is is everywhere. Everyone knows the dynamic around inflation. Even you know, the, the last residuals of team transitory, I think, you know, who were still hanging in there at the beginning of this year, conflict in Ukraine is going to kill those guys off, and then people aren't looking at transitory at all. But I think the big question now, to your point, is if it's stagnation, economic stagnation and inflation, that's actually not necessarily a bad regime for equity markets. Um, if it's proper stagflation, where we're talking about a real kind of hard landing and inflation, then yes, that's different. But at the moment, yes, there's lots of reasons if you look at kind of credit impulse and what the yield curve is doing to, to, to fear a hard landing. But we're not actually seeing that in the data as yet. So, again, I think at the moment, uh, there's lots of headline reasons to scare equities. But on the analysis that we're seeing at the moment, they're largely behaving as they should be. All right, Hugh. So if, if I'm, as Tom Keen likes to say, have the courage to be in the market, in the equity markets, what are some of the sectors that you guys are focusing on these days? 
Well, the most interesting one is that we have the ability to kind of look at the standard investment clock, you know, whether an asset to boom, bust, Goldilocks, you know, what's the kind of macro regime that it's in. And at the moment, the if you're looking at the index, the global index level, the one that stands out is that the NASDAQ has the strongest positive sensitivity to inflation and has a modest but negative sensitivity to growth, i.e. it's okay with weaker growth. So that's the area, really, U.S. big tech. I mean, you have to be careful, obviously, spec tech and non-profit um, names. But big tech actually has some nice defensive properties here if you believe that we're going to go into a stagflationary environment. What would you stay away from in general? I'm not asking for a specific company that you hate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, again, the, 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 the logic would obviously be cyclicals. And we know that a lot of people rotated into value trades uh, earlier this year. Um, if you're going to get a hard landing, then clearly that's the, the obvious play for you. Um, other people will point to the, the flattening of the curve and the normal the relationship that's pursued with, with tech. So there'll be a lot of debate, I think, on the whole kind of growth versus value rotation. Uh, for us right here, right now, tech is the best place to play. Um, energy, obviously, is a classic cyclical play, but you know, I just think while the commodity markets are doing what they're doing, even if it's a cyclical play, you, you wouldn't want to be underexposed to energy just because of the underlying commodity shifts and the supply-demand dynamics that are out there at the moment. Um, so I guess that would leave the more classic cyclical things, maybe like consumer discretionary. Um, financials is a, is a value play, but obviously if rates are going higher, that should be doing well. And a lot of financial models on our framework um, are in regime. They, they are behaving in a, in a kind of um, in a strong macro trading environment, but they are lagging slightly. So it would probably put consumer discretionary ahead of both XLF and XLE. Hugh, what do you make of the destruction we've seen in the bond market? I mean, it's been the worst quarter for global bonds in my lifetime. Um, what does that mean? It's brutal, isn't it? It's really brutal. And I think um, it's only now being challenged by the yen um, in the last couple of trading days, and the two are fighting between them. Um, yeah, I think the thing is with the the bond bear market is I think on this occasion, though, a lot of people are making good money on it. Um, I think if you look at the commitment of traders stuff, you look at a lot of the kind of sell-side positioning um, surveys, you know, it's been easy to make a bearish duration um, argument for some months now. So I think um, performance stats for your typical um, multi-asset fund uh, will actually be pretty decent. So, yes, the price action is horrible, um, but I don't think everyone will be crying. All right, Hugh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, love getting your thoughts there. Hugh Roberts, head of analytics at Quant. Uh, insights. All right, let's go to Christy Wyatt because I want to talk cybersecurity. We're seeing that continue to be a big issue for individuals, for corporations, for states slash countries. Christy Wyatt, CEO and president of Absolute Software. Christy, you know, we, we kind of look at all the news coming out of Ukraine and Russia and, you know, one of the areas uh, where we're seeing some disputes in, in, in cybersecurity, cyber warfare. Just give us a sense of kind of where the average American company or average American is in terms of dealing with cybersecurity. It seems like we're still many steps behind where the bad guys are. Well, I, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I, I think it's a, it's a great question, um, but I think we're always going to feel that way. I think that cyber is one of those risk landscapes where 
things are going to continuously evolve and we're always going to feel like we're just a little bit behind. I do think that the average uh, enterprise in, in uh, the U.S. that we see today is pretty well protected, meaning that they've been thoughtful about what kind of controls they need in place. I think the missing piece is do they have perfect visibility on whether those, things, those technologies are actually installed and working and protecting them, especially now when we know that we're all sort of shields up, right? We are all on standby waiting to see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, what it, what should I be doing? What should we all be doing as you know, private citizens? Um, is there anything beyond two-step verification? Oh, gosh. <laughs> The average, the average enterprise um, business, so large business, we'll start with them. You know, they have between 10 and 20 security applications running on every computer that their employees are using. So there's a lot more than, than multi-factor authentication. And clearly, the smaller the organization, the less of those you have. I would say there's really three things that, you, that we should be thinking about. First is, have we been thoughtful about um, what applications are appropriate for your side of business? Multi-factor authentication, encryption. The second thing is, you know, do, do I know what I'm going to do if something bad happens? 93% of successful cyber attacks are happening with phishing emails, things that a user clicks on. And so they're bound to happen no matter how much training you're doing. Do you know what you're going to do next? Um, and that leads me to my third thing, which is just training. Have you talked to your employees? Have you talked to the people around you, the people you care about, and said, do you know what phishing looks like? Do you know what, what bad things look like when they're happening? Will you recognize it? And will you know kind of what to do? So, I mean, one of the things that we've noticed in this pandemic is people are spending a lot more time working from home, learning from home. It seems like there's more and more data information going into the cloud. Is the cloud inherently safe, do you believe? I think that, the, I mean, clearly we would not see the migration of data into the cloud if we didn't feel comfortable with the level of security there. I don't think that's really where your risk sits. Never say never. But the overwhelming number of attacks that we see are actually happening on the endpoints. They're happening on the computer that the user is using as a way to facilitate getting access to the data. And that data could be on the cloud or in a data center or on the computer itself. Right. And so the endpoint is the place to focus. It is what people touch. And especially, as you pointed out, because everybody's at home. And so you have fewer layers of security uh, available to you. You can't is not network monitoring. These devices are not surrounded. They could be sitting on a home network. And so that user and those applications you're installing on that device are your last line of defense. It does seem like it's just going to be too easy. I mean, I've, uh, I, I, you know, watch for this stuff and nonetheless have been either scammed or almost scammed like two or three times this really quarter. Um, they're just so good. They're so good at it. You know, I had a, for example, I had a, uh, um, a call from purportedly Verizon. They knew my name and my address. They asked for my social. They, uh, you know, the last four digits, of course. And they knew exactly how much my bill was to the penny at that moment. So they uh, clearly they have access to data and then they use it to get and that that's not the kind of attack I guess we're concerned about. What do you think the Russians will be able to do if they you know hit us as hard as they can? So if if, if, if someone was going to try to disrupt uh, an economy or a community, they're going to attack critical infrastructure. They're going to go after financial services, communications, power and energy, and so it is you know it it is perhaps. Um, innocuous. It could be a, we said the breach we saw at Octa a couple of weeks ago was a support 
uh, rep or somebody who had access to do support controls accidentally clicking or getting access to their credentials and then being able to use that to do other things. And so it could look as simple as what you just described, right? It could look like your Verizon bill where they're just trying to collect information from you. It could look like um, somebody is asking you to verify a payment that is missing or insurance internally within organizations. We see a lot of attacks where people are getting approached that looks like an executive is asking them to do something, you know, please go, you know, please go log in and do this thing, or please go get these, this money and send it over here. Um, the thing to remember, whether you're a user at home or whether you're an employee uh, right. trying to do your job at work, is they're not really going to call you. Verizon's never going to call you and say, hi, I'd like to talk to you. Please give me all of your data. The easiest thing to do is to say, you know, to, to not respond to yep. that email, to not to that call, and then just call them yep. um, and say, did you try to reach me? And, right. and so don't click. All right, Christy, thank you so much uh, for joining us there. Christy Wyatt, CEO and President of Absolute Software. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.